Welcome to The Wimlick Show, episode number 42. The Wimlick Show is presented to you by Bright Payment, Debt Agency and Spryker. Today my guest is Brian Beck. He is one of the most known experts in e-commerce, especially B2B e-commerce in the US. And I'm talking with Brian Beck about like the differences between Europe and US when it comes to e-commerce development and COVID effects. Um, it was a super interesting session, so we actually decided to have like a second episode recorded in a couple of weeks where we um, deep dive into some of the cases he's describing in his book about B2B e-commerce transformational projects. But please listen to the first episode first about the general market characteristics and how he values the changes of COVID-19. Brian, welcome to the Wimlex show. I'm really proud having you here on the show. Our first speaker uh, uh, from the United States, actually. We've uh, been focusing usually on the Netherlands uh, and Nordics in uh, Europe, Sweden and Norway. Uh, but today I'd like to learn a little bit more about the winners and losers in B2C and B2B e-commerce in the US. And there's uh, 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 no one who could explain that better um, than you. Maybe you can uh, give like a, a brief overview about your vast experience uh, in the e-commerce industry. Sure, Alex. Well, I'm great. I'm, I'm grateful to be here and thank you for the opportunity. And I'm, I'm, I'm really honored to be your first US speaker. <laughs> That's great. Well, so yeah, just to give you a bit of background on me. So I've been in the e-commerce field for over 20 years, since 1999. That just makes me old. <laughs> and I've been uh, most of my career uh, in operating roles. So most of the time I've been running e-commerce for businesses here in the United States, um, mainly retailers, uh, mainly selling consumer products. So companies like PacSun, which sells apparel, Pacific Sunwear, California, um, Harbor Freight Tools, which is a chain of about 700 stores across the United States. And I ran their e-commerce businesses. And you know, so a lot of, a lot of my uh, experience and these days my thought leadership and the book I've published uh, all have to do with um, you know, my experience doing that and then translating it in the case of the book into uh, B2B e-commerce channels. So I published a book called Billion Dollar B2B e-commerce uh, in the spring of 2020 amidst COVID. And so we, uh, you know, the timing, I think, actually was quite interesting of, of publishing that, just given the fact that, you know, the world is now turning more and more to digital and digital means and, and e-commerce to connect with customers. So happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And I'm excited about our conversation. Very cool. So maybe let's start with a little bit more uh, um, super superficial uh, topic on first glance. So uh, when we are talking about e-commerce in Europe, especially in Central Europe, uh, UK, uh, Germany, Switzerland, uh, and you would use the term e-commerce in, in a street conversation, so people would a uh, um, say, "Oh, it's a call. It's it's about like Amazon or Zalando." And e-commerce is killing the inner cities. Uh, mm. There is no inner city concept in the U.S., but it's it has a very very um, uh, a very very uh, sensitive. Uh, um, uh, um, thing about like talking e-commerce yeah. so it's like yeah. of course booming now for years it has in some areas especially in fashion uh, over 20 percent of a um, of a market share um, already but uh, um, if 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 you would ask people rating do you like e-commerce or not look usually you would see like uh, um, not a thumbs up so uh, uh, what have you seen like in the us and in the last 10 years yeah interesting and uh, i love this dichotomy but similarities too that we can talk through about our two markets um You know, in the U.S., uh, the consumer has strongly voted for e-commerce in terms of its adoption. The consumer, um, you know, in terms of the even even as we work through this pandemic, has turned increasingly to e-commerce. Has it been has e-commerce and the large marketplaces like Amazon and others been um, a reason for the decline in some of the traditional uh, retail channels? I think you know you, you've seen. I think what they've done really is raise the bar, right? If you think about um, where the consumer is voting to spend their dollars and where the B2B buyer is as well, that is that is moving largely to e-commerce. So I think there's a it's a it's a it's a fairly complex dynamic uh, when you compare Europe to the U.S. and in terms of where um, you know the, the dynamics are somewhat different because, for example, in the U.S. we're very we have a lot of retail square footage, 
per person versus Europe. I think it's something like seven or eight times the amount of square footage for retail stores. So as you see more and more shifts into the consumer's preference for e-commerce, that's that is that is a, a critical um, a factor that's that's causing a decline in things like the shopping malls in the United States um, and traditional retail. And what it's done is it said to retailers and other resellers of product, you need to raise your game and you need to invest in digital channels in a way that you maybe haven't in the past. And those that haven't in the past have uh, have now experienced real challenges. And it's 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 being set by Amazon, but frankly, it's being set by all the uh, more advanced e-commerce players here in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. We have digital native brands here that are that are connecting with consumers and business buyers like like never before, using digital native platforms to to make that connection. So the 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 bar has gone up, and not every company has kept up. So okay. you have winners and you have losers, right? Okay, and, and and I will tell you what I would uh, I I usually say to um, a brick and mortar uh, retail store owners. Let's say you're like a brick and mortar store owner. Let's mm -hmm. say 20, 30, 40 um, stores in different shopping malls in the U.S. Uh, and I I will I will tell you my answer in a minute. But uh, what is what is your answer when those people ask you? Okay, Brian, I know Amazon is winning. I know malls are dying. Uh, I don't have the competences yet when it comes to e-commerce and I'm selling um, shoes. Yeah. So what should I do? What should you do? <laughs> That's the question. So, <clears throat> well, I think, you know, what if, if these digitally native brands and, and marketplaces like Amazon have taught us nothing else, it's that we need to be focused on the customer and establishing a relationship. that's not just about price and selection. It needs to be about understanding and, and a deeper connection with that customer. And so if you're selling shoes, you need to understand where and how that customer is, for example, going to use those shoes. I give a great example, actually, in the shoe category. I, I've for years studied the company REI. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's a, no. it's a recreational uh, equipment, and they, are, they make sporting goods. They're one of the largest, excuse me, retail sporting goods. They're one of the largest sporting goods retailers here in the United States. Okay, so they hundreds of stores. Um, advanced e-commerce effort, fully omni-channel. Okay, so tying that back to shoes, what do they do differently than, say, an Amazon does or some of their competitors do? Well, when you buy a product from REI, you're going to get, they have a profile and they understand your profile across all the different channels. They're going to understand, you know, your e-commerce behavior. They're going to understand your in-store behavior. That, that's called CRM or customer relationship management. And when you buy something on their e-commerce site, for example, I buy a pair of hiking shoes, right? What do I get from REI two weeks later? Well, I get an email telling me where I can use those hiking shoes or boots in by my house, in my area, how I can use them and what else I might need for my trip. It's not just about promotion. It's about establishing a deeper connection with the customer and then talking to them about how they can use the products from that retailer in the field. Amazon doesn't do that. Other other companies that aren't as advanced don't do that. So when you think about, you know, what is it? What's the new bar in retail? It's about and, and brand marketing, by the way, too. It's about making sure that you have a more than just a price and selection connection with your customer. And that starts by understanding the customer at a, fu at a fundamental level and having the systems and technology to be able to understand them at that level and be really deliver a personalized experience. I mean, humans have, Alex, I don't know if you ever saw the statistic here in the United States. Um, there was a survey done or a study done about five years ago by the U.S. Center of Biotechnology, and they measured the attention span of a human versus a goldfish. Okay. Now, <laughs> I'm not sure how they measure the attention span of a goldfish. However, the human has a lower attention span now, apparently, than a goldfish does. Our attention span is down to something like eight seconds. <laughs> so my point is just as, hu as human beings, we have, no, we have no attention span. We're constantly distracted with our mobile phones and with other things. And so for a retailer or a brand, you have less time than ever to connect with that customer and deliver a relevant experience and then connect with them beyond just a product and a price, but connect with them with, with an experience like REI has done. Does that make okay, sense? Can, can, yeah, it, it totally makes sense. So, but uh, uh, let, let us take a, a moment at, at our REI. So, we have um, similar uh, businesses in, in Europe. So, in Germany, uh, probably most known for uh, for outdoor hiking equipment is uh, Globetrotter. It was like the hmm. 
multi-channel, omni-channel case uh, in Germany for years, almost mm -hmm. bankrupt um, actually. And I, I tell you why in a minute. Um, mm -hmm. Then uh, Sport, Sportcheck, which was which was part of the Otto Group, uh, um, also very dominant online and offline, but really failing. And um, and what we learned or, or what we saw over the last years is that this kind of retail brick and mortar operations was was very expensive they couldn't focus on a superior experience in brick and mortar therefore they couldn't neither focus on a superior exper uh, experience online though they lost traffic to zalando or which, mm -hmm. which is kind of zappos in the in the us in the us so this kind of case you have described was kind of the, the hiking wear it mm -hmm. was there in theory and from like 100,000 products maybe 100 products have been served this kind of customer journey, <laughs> right. but most products have not been served this customer journey. And there there comes like the so-called omni-channel dilemma. So 80% of the all the efforts went into the connection between brick and mortar and yeah. online, but uh, yeah. uh, uh, they should have focused on either online or offline from now, nowadays perspective, it's essentially online. So there's, if, if you ask me like for European case, there's in from like the bigger company there's not one successful case uh when it came to omni-channel or multi-channel transformation so mm -hmm. some companies manage to become like the online dominant players in their category for example toman which is like the audio equipment uh, mm -hmm. player in europe with like 1 billion in revenue which is a lot like for the european market sure but most players like globetrotter like the reis of europe they failed so um uh, maybe you you know the numbers from from REI better, but would you say from a today's perspective, perspective they they kind of mastered the omni-channel omni-channel games, or they know oh. how to equip brick and mortar mm -hmm. stores plus run a very successful online business? I think there's there's a number of cases. So number one, I think that whole market is still evolving, and I think there's you have cases where some companies are doing it better than others, and and there, there's individual cases. I gave the REI example. Are you familiar with a company called Sephora? Do you know who that is? Yes, yes. yes. So Sephora um, has has a really, I, th I think, done a good job of sort of the omni-channel tying the store together with, with digital. Now, in, in the U.S., and it may be different than the EU, in the U.S., um, you know, we, we still believe that there is a very significant portion of business that will continue to happen offline. So even today with COVID, our e-commerce penetration went from 16 to 30% in two months. <laughs> Crazy. But, and I'm sure you're seeing similar things in, in, in the EU. Yes. Um, but even with that, you know, some of those behaviors are going to sustain, but what it does is it puts the, it makes the digital and the, and the, the mobile phone and that makes it more important. But most analysts, and I believe too, that, that the comp that, that there still will remain a very large percentage of offline transactions happening. So what Sephora has done is quite a few different things to kind of tie those things together. They've, they've experimented with a lot of different, um, one of the things they did, which I think is actually really interesting, they started, they, they, they have an innovation lab. So they created a whole group to think about how do we better connect with the customer using digital means. And so they have, for example, they have a graphical, graphic art, online artists. It's an AI or artificial intelligence simulator that allows customers to try on makeup virtually. And then, and then the store associates are notified of these things. These are um, these, these are the kinds of tools that are driving relevant experiences for the uh, for the customer, and helping them to more effectively uh, you know experience the in-store side of the business as well as the virtual side. So it's it's an interesting, and they of course have a have a, a significant e-commerce uh, business as well. I think about a billion dollars of their revenue is e-commerce which is pretty large. So a significant uh, penetration of e-commerce, but also a lot of the things they've done to sort of cross-channel. Another example is a company called Home Depot. You're probably familiar with Home Depot. Yes. Um, so Home Depot has has uh, more than half of its orders play, uh, placed online are actually picked up in the store. And so closing the gap and between the between the digital what's presented on the e-commerce site and the digital experience with what's in the store with with the store experience is really important. And it, I mean, to your point you were making earlier, Alex, you know, they may have a hundred thousand products, but only a hundred products are, are enabled with these experiences. Yeah. It's a, this is not, these are not small investments. These are not things that, you know, um, are, they require people, they require technology and they take time. And so, you know, I think through this COVID situation, we're seeing those that have invested are winning 
and the and the field, frankly, is going to thin. The folks who are and you see it. I mean, there's been dozens of bankruptcies here in the United States in the last six months. Uh, J.C. Penney and J. Crew and lots of others, and these are big, well-known retailers in the United States. And some of them have invested in e-commerce, but but they haven't gone far enough. And the product ultimately is 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 also a big part of this consideration. How are they sourcing product? If they only differentiate on product, it's it's you know the the, the age of the department store is over. And so this is uh, it's just a different it's a different world we're in. And this is a this to my in my opinion this is a brand defining moment for companies, retailers, and brands. Um, you know because because of what's happening with COVID, other things are becoming more important to the consumer and the business buyer. Yeah. So, so the one advice I, I try to give to those uh, brick and mortar store owners a couple of years ago was, okay, try to sell your store, like your uh, the uh, the real estate uh, uh, value, and um, uh, and buy Amazon stock. Uh, I don't know if ever <laughs> if, if one of these store owners well, followed my advice. Like from a financial perspective, this would have been, I think, a good advice. Yeah. Uh, uh, but from a strategic investment, I can understand why they did not follow it. So maybe let's take a moment, like with the big warehouses. So uh, we have the same similar examples in uh, in Europe. Europe, uh, kind of different businesses, but you might have heard of uh, Karstadt Kaufhof, which is like in Central Europe, one of the biggest um, uh, warehouse uh, 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 um, uh, business. So um, would you then assume there's like um, a point of no return when it was too late for Sears to invest in online? And if so, <laughs> when was this point? Yeah, well, I mean, Sears did. In fact, it's funny you, you mentioned that because, you know, in my, in my book, it's the first the first case study I mentioned is Sears. And I would, you know, I think, um, I think it's a funny analogy you said. Uh, so I think, um, yes, there's a point at which, unfortunately, it's uh, too late. And for many retailers uh, here in the U.S., you know, that point is, has passed. If you haven't invested significantly already, you have nothing to build on. You're in a, you're in a world of, of pain right now. And, and, be, and so I think, I think yes, for Sears, uh, you know, it was, that's an interesting case study because for, for many years, I think what did, did in Sears was more of the organizational silos that they had in place and they weren't able to take enough action quickly enough. And I think a lot of US companies suffer uh, from that. One thing I am seeing retailers do though, uh, and I see this playing out in the B2B side as well, is a lot of them are doubling down on their, their product strategy and some of them are um, investing heavily in private label products or in some cases buying their suppliers. Because if you think about what traditionally has differentiated a, um, uh, a, a company, a reseller or retailer price and selection, um, that's quite frankly, those, those have gone away. This is the age of transparency. Consumers and business buyers can see things. They can see the, the price, the information. They have more buying choices than ever. Uh, and as a result, the product itself is what really differentiates, in my opinion. And so, you know, you look at Uh, a lot of retailers coming out with private label products. I mean, even Amazon, right? Amazon has 500 product label brands um, of their own exclusives. And so if we look at, um, if we take a look at that trend, I think that is one way that um, that retailers can can differentiate is, is by delivering on experiences we've been talking about, but also on the product, which is differentiated, which takes a change in thinking. It's a different business than you may have been in historically as a retailer. Okay, Are you seeing that in Europe or no? Mm, yes, yeah, so so I, I think the point of no return was like long ago for most retailers. So yeah. now retailers are some are investing like in a in a mobile solution, whatever. But say they're like investing not because out of a strong position, they're investing out of a desperate position because they're losing so much traffic and revenue in the all channels, and now they just like at, an, at a website, and it's but it's not like from a user standard perspective and even like on a website uh, uh, level so lots of the yes we, we call it e-commerce 1.0 generation mm -hmm. business model so the e-commerce business models that uh, uh, became live in uh, in the 2000s uh, the first uh, uh, consumer electronics online stores uh, like the first um, shoe online stores really focused on e-commerce they lost against Zappos, amazon and other uh, much more platform uh, kind of approaches so it's it's not it's not getting easier so it's getting harder and harder and harder to uh, to to join the game um, but um, uh, uh, but of course like not, not even amazon is is right in everything and there's a chance and in in europe we try to or i try to sum it up like um, um, though in, in 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 the following um, in the following thesis so i say there's like 
either you're like a dominant uh, a dominant provider retailer in your niche you really dominate the audio sector or the uh, expensive camera sector or hiking sector maybe that's something where, where rei is, is really strong or you're a big marketplace so these two business models do have a decent chance to uh, uh to create a stable customer relation Yep. If not, if you're not part of these two kind of business models in, in online, you're actually only like a logistics company to then REI or to Ooh. Amazon. You're just like deliver a product that eventually will be exchanged by another provider, right? And then that's kind of a logistics game. So the, the biggest will yeah. win. The the one with who's owning the uh, the 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 uh, uh, the um, the um, uh, the industry uh, mm-hmm. sectors in China will win eventually, and, and yeah. that's what we right. are seeing. And that is, and what's happening right now in Europe is it's happening even faster than I would have expected. So uh, we see bankruptcy uh, mm-hmm. on a level uh, like in like one year that we've seen aggregated like in five years before, and yeah. even that uh, uh, that speed is uh, is is uh, is increasing. That's um, so. Would you uh, would you um, also share this view for the U.S. Yes. market? Either become marketplace or dominant niche player. Well, I think uh, you're. Oh, it's a great point you made. Okay, so so put it in context. I read a study the other day that said almost fifty percent of U.S. consumers are buying from brands they've never bought for from before because of the pandemic. Loyalty is gone right now, and this is a moment in time for the U.S. market where you know. It's, it's almost up for grabs. If you've done a good job and you were talking about the niche, you know, the niche market, um, you know, I describe that as a uh, someone who's very good. It's almost specialty retail or someone who is. And, and if you think about um, what we call DNVBs here in the U.S., digitally native vertical brands, they're doing it. They're doing it well. And that's exactly the business model they have. They go into a niche. They find pain. Right. They find something that that a company historically has not done well. They build a direct-to-consumer retail model using e-commerce. They understand the consumer at an intimate level from the very first uh, time they go into business, and they and they and they build that intimate connection. And I, I completely agree with you. I mean, let's let's take we can take for example in the U.S. Uh, the bedding industry. Okay, take the mattress business. I don't know what it's like in the EU. But the business here in the United States of buying a mattress as a consumer for years has been very difficult. And it's been, you, it's almost like buying a used car. You go to a, the mattress yeah. store. Same, uh, same, same, <laughs> the, same. The, the, you know, it's, you can't tell the difference between the products. It's, it's all convoluted. The power's in the hand of the retailer, yeah. not in the hands of the consumer. Yeah. And these but there's, digital- always, there's always an offer for uh, well, that's, uh, there's always, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. There's always an offer. But the um, but this whole crop of pure play DNVB companies, digitally native vertical brand companies, has cropped up over the last few years, and they've taken a completely different approach. Very transparent. Here's what our here's what our mattresses are made of. Here's the prices. Here's three levels. They've simplified it. Very simple. Three levels or five levels of mattress based on how you like to sleep. Here's what's in the mattresses. Compare them. Free shipping. Free delivery free returns, no hassles, the pain, they eliminated all the pain the consumer had for, for decades about buying, you know, about buying mattresses. And guess what? These companies, there's five, six, seven of them that are over a hundred million dollars in revenue in no time. Sattva, Purple, uh, Casper, there's a load of them. And, and, and what's interesting, the dynamic that's interesting that's happening is the traditional mattress companies are now buying these mattress companies. So there was a big, I think it was Serta or Simmons, one of the big mattress companies bought a company called Tuft and Needle. Why did they buy them? They bought one of the DMVBs because they needed to get the talent in the building to un- that understood how to do this and how to how to evolve into this direct to consumer model and how to tie more tightly to the consumer and understand what they really needed out of the out of the um, the experience. And so I have one hundred percent agree with you. If you're a retailer, uh, traditional, stuck in your ways and stuck in how you've done things for for decades, um, you may have to do something drastic like acquire someone. Um, because you may not be able to get there fast enough. And that's yeah. exactly what CERTA did. But even for acquisition, it was too late for some of the mattress companies in Europe. So uh, one of the main uh, mattress uh, retail companies in Europe uh, um, was uh, losing market share um, to not Casper. Casper was not successful in Europe, uh, but Casper, uh, similar businesses, mm-hmm. much more cost efficient. So they never 
uh, businesses that never sponsored podcasters, for example, like Casper did for, <laughs> <laughs> for millions of dollars. But uh, but uh, they even sponsored my podcast in Germany. So, oh. uh, but uh, the um, uh, uh, but uh, there was uh, one business called Matratzen Concord, which was like the main retailer uh, mm. in, in in Central Europe with I think over one thousand um, stores. Mm. And this business was uh, uh, almost bankrupt and then sold for five million, not five wow. billion, for five million. Wow. Uh, though that's like the 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 the, the the value of 5,000 matrices. So, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, so, so it is even too late for acquiring those businesses, uh, partly partially be because of the inflated uh, valuations in the e-commerce oh, yeah. market, of course, uh, partially be because they just ran out of cash. And um, I'd like to go back to one example uh, you mentioned with Home Depot, this click and collect thing. Though so there's like one dominant um, consumer electronics company in Europe called Media Market with 20 billion euros in revenue. Mm -hmm. and they claim they have like 45% click and collect uh, uh, um, orders, um, but they the share of like e the pure e-commerce orders is not is not going up quick enough, and those click and collect orders can never replace like the revenue they are losing on their uh, in their brick and mortar stores, which are mm -hmm. like super expensive with super expensive rent and personnel. So. Um, uh, and, and that's why we are looking like from a European perspective, pretty much on those um, those uh, uh, pure play companies like Zalando, which are like very successful in fashion, like Toman, which was a retailer, brick and mortar retailer before, and is now 100% uh, pure uh, pure e-commerce in uh, in in in, uh, in audio uh, professional audio equipment. So, do you see Zalando or? Tolman or about you kind of cases in the US. So of course we've we've all learned about like Zappos, which was acquired by uh, yeah. by Amazon. But are there dominant online players in like one category um, uh, um, sure. now uh, now outperforming the brick and mortar retail mm -hmm. stores? Oh yeah, you see it in in a variety of categories. I spent five years in the home furnishings business. Uh, I was a CEO of an early stage um, high growth. Back, this is 15 years ago, uh, and I used to compete with this little company called Wayfair. I don't know if you guys hmm. ever heard of um, heard of Wayfair. Yes, very successful now in Europe too. Yeah, Wayfair is doing billions. I think three or four billion now in um, annual revenue, and it's all online. And, I, and so, having spent a lot of time in that market, um, you know they have they have done a lot of things right and and better, frankly, than some of the others like Amazon and others. To customize an experience for a vertical uh, that is that's meeting the consumer's needs. Okay, so what are they doing differently? Well, they're all the things that that have to do with when a furniture purchase online, which by the way is very difficult because you're shipping a big bulky product, right? So the fulfillment piece of it is quite difficult. Um, so what they've done is they they have incorporated a lot of those elements into their business model. They've incorporated the, the, all the all the different elements of buying something which is very tangible into their uh, online experience. So they allow, for example, um, you know, for, you know, indications of of the of freight. How long is it going to take? I mean, the, these, some of these sound basic, but they have like measurements of the length of time it's going to take to get to you. What are the what are the specific elements of the furniture as it relates to? Uh, style, how it how it goes with other products. Uh, there's a lot of sort of unique things about the furniture purchase, which require a uh, customization of, for example, the um, uh, a room builder. How do you you know how do you build things, bring things together into a room to create a cohesive look? So these are the kinds of things that um, some of the other you know the take of a, a, de a definite focus on a category and an understanding of how that consumer or B two B buyer buys in that category. And so Wayfair has done a, a good job of that. They've also brought in a lot of assortment and they've, they've done a good job of, of cleaning data and, ca and categorizing it in a way that makes it easy for customers to find the product, to sort the product, to use their search functions, et cetera. So there's a lot of different components that go into doing it well. And, and I mean, Wayfair is probably the best example of that in terms of reaching scale in a specific uh, market. Uh, there's another one called House, H-A-U-Z-Z here in the U.S., that yes. does a similar um, similar type of thing, although they have an interesting business. They, they kind of probably... aggregate like interior designers, right? Well, kind of. So they started with content, and this is an interesting business model too that's evolved here, starting with content and evolving into commerce. So they they started with idea. It was an idea um, site. It was it was where people could and designers could contribute ideas. People could comment on them to get inspiration for their rooms, for their home decor. 
in their case, uh, they, they added maybe five years ago, they added commerce and they added a marketplace model. So it's, it's similar in some ways to, you know, to what Wayfair has done, but in a different way. Wayfair started with commerce. Now they have some content. How it started with content and now they have commerce. So, but I think the, the, the similarity is they both created a bespoke experience for the consumer looking for home furnishings products. Uh, and in some, some degree, the professional looking for home furnishings products. And I think that connection comes through on their websites when you're shopping there. And so I think that that's an advantage. I, I, I would agree with you. There's an, there's an advantage a company can have by creating that experience and then competing with, you know, the traditional retailers and take, taking share from the traditional retailers. So, yeah, that model works here. Hmm. Okay, got it. Before we are uh, looking more into the uh, detailed effects of COVID, uh, maybe going back to my initial question. So do you have any hope for the standard uh, mom and pop shop with two or three stores in, uh, in, in, in shopping malls? Well, if they're in shopping malls, maybe not. <laughs> Unless they're okay. in I mean, there's uh, the, the latest statistic, Alex, is, you know, 100,000 uh, stores here in the U.S. closing in the next four years. 100,000. How many stores, how many 100, stores are there? 100,000 stores. I, that's yeah, but how many stores are there in total? If there's I don't like, know. Uh, 100 good, million, is, that's, that's not a problem, right? <laughs> that's a good question, right? Yeah, no, good, yeah. good point. I'll, I'll get back to you on the, with that stat. But, I mean, that's a lot of stores. And so you yeah. think about, um, if, you, if, you, if you think about, is there hope for the mom and pop? I mean, uh, number one. Look, yes, there is in the sense that, you know, I think I think the maxims of business of good business can 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 even be, you know, can can translate down to small businesses. In other words, if you are relating to your customer, ultimately, what's good business about? It's about serving the need of a customer, depending on the business you're in. If you're a small mom and pop store, if you're doing a good job meeting the need of a specific customer locally, Yeah, you can stay in business. You, you have, but you have to make sure you're focused on something that's unique and serves that customer. If you're not, it's not going to work. And so, do they need to evolve and become digital? Some of them, in some ways, do. I mean, in the U.S., we have lots of. I don't, do you guys have Yelp in the EU, for example? You know what that is? Yes. Yelp, but it it, it kind of uh, failed in the EU. It was like oh, did it? important, okay. like for a couple of years ago, but it's not important anymore. It was it's dominated by Google. Well, okay. So similar concept though, probably Google in the EU. I mean, here in the US, you know, it, small businesses live and die by their Yelp ratings. You, you have a good Yelp rating, you're going to get all kinds of leads and, and customers through the web, right? So people go to Yelp when they want a local business and they search for it. And Yelp is a way that, um, that these businesses can use to, you know, to, to capture customers, to stay differentiated, to stay in top, top of mind. And Businesses that are doing that, they have to be digitally aware. They have to bring in the digital aspects, and Yelp is a good way to do it for, for the business. So I, you know, I don't want to tell you that hope is lost for mom and pops. If you're in a mall, it's going to be harder because malls are declining in relevance. So, okay, I, I know, like the, from a U.S. point of view, how to how to sugarcoat things. Uh, uh, I'd like to translate it in the European answer. There is no hope um, anymore. And uh, if I have to sum it up uh, um, uh, um, from the, there was. Um, There was a publication from the Association of Store Owners in Germany like two weeks ago when it came to um, store closing effects due to COVID. And just in Germany, they expect like 50,000 stores uh, mm -hmm. um, to wow. close. So uh, the COVID effects are in Germany like we've kind of leapfrogged two to three years in e-commerce development. So every category like went up like crazy, some hundred, some hundred percent, some 50 percent. So especially the uh, food, uh, the area of e-food uh, grew a lot. So, uh, uh, and of course, um, uh, one of the effects is that more companies are spending now uh, uh, money to e-commerce companies and infrastructure companies like us. Um, so what was the effect uh, in the US sense or what, or you're in the middle of COVID still. So we are like behind first wave in Europe, I would say, yeah. and now try to try to avoid second wave but nobody knows what's <laughs> going to happen but it seems to be still middle, middle and first wave in the u.s COVID, heavy COVID. yeah we, we haven't unfortunately alex we have not surpassed the first wave here yeah. uh we're still in the first wave and it's getting worse quite frankly our people are going back to school and it's just you know it's it's becoming unfortunately a, a, a not a good situation so what's the effect on business well the first The first thing is that, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing a lot more e-commerce activity and penetration, right? So we've jumped from 16 to over 30% e-commerce penetration in terms of where people are ordering. The other thing that's happening is a lot of people now, and it's, it's really, it's all related, people are working from home. 
75% of the workforce as of two months ago was working from home uh, that could work from home. And that actually, the, a survey I recently read, that, that, is, that is expected to continue, not at those levels, but 30% of the workforce is still expected to be working from home a year from now. So what companies are discovering is that it's, it's now actually easy, it's somewhat easy to have people work from home. And as they're doing that, you know, they're, they're realizing, heck, I don't need to spend all this money on office space. I can have a mobile workforce. People like working from home. And so what does that do? All those, those trends working together. I mean, that's pushing, that's pushing more people to buy through, through e-commerce. So number one, I think that the impact is um, e-commerce as a channel has become more important. People are also discovering, um, discovering how to buy things that they've never bought online before. As I mentioned earlier, 45% of the po- 46, I think percent of the population is buying from brands they've never purchased from before now because of COVID. So it creates an opportunity for them to discover things. I'll use grocery as an example. The grocery, grocery e-commerce is up something like 250% in, in the United States. And if you think about some of the businesses that are embracing that, like Walmart, for example, Walmart has, is, it, it, it recently announced um, something, they're doing something with a company called Instacart, which is an online delivery service. And if you think about, you know, if you create, start creating experiences for consumers in this market that are, that allow you as a consumer to discover you as a brand, discover everything you have, that's, that, that's a game changer in certain markets. So Walmart's been competing against Amazon for years. And they're still relatively small in comparison of, you know, in terms of overall e-commerce penetration. Amazon's 50% of the e-commerce penetration in the United States. Walmart, as they as they uh, bring into in services like this with with grocery on fire, meaning more people going to e-commerce, they create they create a willingness of customers to try Walmart that may have never tried them before. That may have never tried them as an alternative to Amazon. Amazon uh, Walmart's rolling out something called uh, Walmart Plus, which is their their loyalty program, which is designed to compete with Amazon Prime. And and frankly, Walmart has uh, some assets Amazon doesn't. It has a lot of stores and it has a very strong grocery presence, much stronger than Amazon's. And so, you know, the dynamics are shifting. People willing to try new retailers, try new brands. And 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 these and these impacts are going to be felt for, for years because the consumer the consumer may make choices That'll last beyond the beyond COVID. So I think there's so many different levels where, where that we're seeing here. I mean, the acceleration of, of bankruptcies of, of you know apparel retail, for example. Amazon in the U.S. is the number one apparel retailer in the country by volume, number one, and that that's and that's that's across all categories, underwear and. You know, but I, I also read uh, during COVID uh, that so, um, the market, so you talked about the market share um, of Amazon, roughly like 50%, like um, they lost rel- rel- relatively against Target and Walmart because they they, incre- they, they grew much stronger like yes. uh, on their level and therefore like the market share is not distributed a little bit like different. So would you say then that Target and Walmart, they really stand a chance against Amazon with their oh, yeah. strategies? I think yeah? so. I think so. I, you know, I think I don't. Uh, so here in the U.S., I don't think brick and mortar is dead. I think it's changing. I think it's I think you're going to see the strongest companies survive. I think you're going to see a thinning of the pack. You're already seeing it. I think um, I think you're going to see those who have invested significantly in, in digital and omnichannel like Target, you know, with their they, they just posted a, a strong I have the numbers here somewhere, a very strong quarter. Uh, the uh, the they're you know, those are the businesses that are going to survive and thrive through this because um, they are creating convenience for the customer. They're accommodating the customer during this time. Look, a thinning was already happening here in the U.S. market. You've seen these bank retail bankruptcies for the last five years. It's just, this is, COVID is doing nothing but accelerating it. Uh, I, heard, I heard one, I think it was uh, McKinsey, um, a study I recently read that talked about, you know, 10 years of acceleration in five months. And I believe that. I, I, we're seeing it. It's, uh, it's incredible. Hmm. And, okay, so... Because, so you're more hopeful, like for brick and mortar companies, than, than I am. Than I, than I am. Uh, but maybe that's uh, just because we haven't seen so many success stories uh, in uh, in the in the German market or European uh, market, especially not the markets where Amazon is so dominant. Uh, definitely, mm-hmm. we see some success stories in markets like the Netherlands, uh, Sweden, 
Poland, for example, where Amazon wasn't active uh, for like a decade and now they're starting uh, start spending money. Uh, um, but we haven't seen success cases with from companies with um, brick and mortar DNA trying to challenge Amazon or Zalando or about you or Tuman. So that, that's actually like where our thinking uh, comes from. If you would, uh, if you was asking um, a brick and mortar retailer or somebody from the association of brick and mortar retailers, of course, multi-channel is still the thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Invest in, in a website and everything, everything turns out good uh, uh, eventually. But maybe let's focus for the last like a couple of minutes on, uh, on, on a special er er area that, uh, uh, that was not so much in the spotlight of e-commerce like for two decades, which is uh, B2B uh, <laughs> yeah. commerce. That's where your, your, your book uh, came from. And, um, and yes. I, um, I, I just went to your, Uh, to your book page, trying to find out uh, uh, what, what the book is, uh, what, what the book is especially uh, um, about. Can you, uh, before we deep dive into the topics, can you uh, give us a, um, uh, some background information? Uh, why did you write a book about like B 2 B e-commerce? Something that is occasionally actually not happening uh, <laughs> so much, but then if you're like deep diving in the numbers, it's already bigger well, than B 2 C. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's. That's the thing, Alex. It's it's it is happening at least in the U.S. I can't speak as much about EU, but in the U.S. it is happening, and and people are winning market share um, because they're taking advantage of it. It's uh, it is two and a half, three times the size of retail e-commerce, and the reason I wrote the book is because you know I got into the B 2 B side of e-commerce about five years ago, uh, and I was looking for things to help my clients understand what they ought to do. And there was nothing really in the market to give them. They, they asked me for books. And so I decided to write one based on my experience, not only with on the retail side and everything that I did right and wrong for years, because, you know, I made a lot of mistakes during 17 years of running e-commerce. Fortunately, I had some good successes as well. And, you know, the, the, the thing that, um, the thing that stuck out to me when I got into B2B was that, you know, they, these folks need a resource. So I decided to write a book. It's 400 pages long. It's 12 chapters, and it's really every aspect of B2B, um, of bringing e-commerce to a B2B organization. What, what it, Alex, the key, thing, the key thing about B2B is that it, it incorporates a lot of the elements of B2C e-commerce, but it can be so transformational for a business because it's, it revolutionizes uh, their, their, their operation, their ability to market to customers, And to deepen their their share of wallet with customers, B 2 B is different than B 2 C in the sense that you have a usually a smaller set of customers you're selling to, but you know them. In B 2 B, there's there's usually a relationship, right? And so you by knowing them, you're able to go deeper in personalization. You're able to go deeper in in understanding how they're using the products. It's like on the B 2 C side when we talked about some of those DNVBs. It's about it's about an intimate relationship. With the customer that's facilitated by um, by e-commerce, and and it and it reinforces the physical relationship. So I wrote it because e-commerce can be truly transformational. And I have to say, I mean, some of these businesses, a manufacturer, for example, that I profile in the book, a company called Illumina. They make medical products. They're a three billion dollar company. They make genomics research equipment. They're a global company. They implemented e-commerce. It's going to be 50% of their business. They're a three and a half billion dollar company. They launched e-commerce three years ago, right? So think about a digital transformation when you do it right. This can go far beyond what a retailer can do necessarily. So it's it's a it's because a lot of it's because the customer is demanding it. So anyway, I can go on for a while on this topic, as you can tell. Yeah, we we can stay for this topic for uh, for a while because so what um, uh, um, our software is actually catered for B 2 B commerce uh, for B 2 B commerce. So uh, we are working with a lot of B 2 B commerce uh, or B 2 B companies uh, in Europe, um, and so what what we are seeing is still different. So most of these companies. Um, um, grew very successful with like um, with a field force kind of yes. sales approach. Oh, and, yeah. and they just went out and sh showed their product and they built like a person-to-person -person kind of relationship uh, approach. And then the first thing they try to digitize is uh, because, and, and then the companies, if you look at the org chart, 50% of the people working in the company are part of the field force, like <laughs> handling the field force or being right. in the field. That's so, right. And then when digitization starts, so people don't, so the comp those companies and, and we are getting like one RFP per day from a B2B company. Mm -hmm. 
I would say 90% of those RFPs are not uh, uh, not um, centered around around the customers. It, it's rather around like this kind of feed force. How how not to um, how not to blame them for like the cost inefficiency. <laughs> so we right. want to do e-commerce. We know we have to sell directly but when it comes to new customers because you know Alex or Brian, when we start today, like selling directly, then, you know, all these like directors of the field force, like uh, yelling at me and saying, okay, we don't sell a shit. And then companies running out of business. So that's like the, what the RFPs are structured. So you uh -huh. literally can see so how they try to navigate around this uh, conflict uh, of, 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 of interest. So how do you manage this conflict? And I'm pretty yeah. sure the same in the US. How do you manage this oh, conflict in the US? Absolutely. And I work with some companies that sell globally too. Uh, Illumina is a good example of that. That's a, that's a great point. I have a whole chapter on that actually. Um, it's called Aligning Selling Channels. One of the, one of the um, um, so e-commerce and digital transformation is not necessarily easy for B2B companies because they have been selling in a traditional sense for many years. And that is, be, that is exactly for one, one of the reasons you're talking about. The sales force it, it views, in, if they're not involved in the process, they don't understand, if they don't understand the benefits of e-commerce, they can fight and will fight against e-commerce. They'll think of it as it's, it's the death of a salesman, to quote the famous Arthur Miller book. It's, 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 it's going to compete against me. It's going to take my business away. When actually what happens is when the sale when the sales functions are aligned, it makes the sales team more efficient because what it does is it pushes tasks that they've handled manually, like checking order status or for a customer, or placing a repeat order for a customer, or handling some kind of a process or 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 checking inventory status, things like that. That can all be pushed to the web and the salesperson can still earn commission on the sale. That's the, the, the important thing is it's about the organization evolving its process. The technology, as you well know, is there to, to handle these things. It's, it's more about aligning the organization. And, and that's why one of, one, of the, one of the, I think the second chapter of my book is all about leadership. This has to come from the top of the organization. When you look at, if you look at the, um, the companies that have been successful here in the U.S. and, and internationally with e-commerce, it's come from the CEO. It's come from the board. It's it's not it's not coming from a, a business unit. It's not coming from the IT department. It's coming from the top of the organization, and they're forcing change. This is not a an easy thing to do, and I think this is, there's a lot of lessons from retail here, Sears, for these for these um, B two B companies. Because look, your buyer, at least in the U S, your buyer is a is going to be almost completely a millennial, which is someone born between 1980 and 2000. These people are digital natives. They come to your site. They want an Amazon-like experience. You're not delivering it. They're looking somewhere else. But the companies that are that are that are engaging in this, and this isn't just big companies, Alex. I have a, a distributor that that I interviewed for the book. That there there were twenty million dollar company. They almost doubled the business by adding e-commerce, and, and and it's because they offered the 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 convenience of e-commerce ahead of their competitors. It's incredible. So that, I mean, these are the reasons I wrote the book is, is because the, the transformation is really amazing when it's done right. And it, and it needs to align the sales force to your point. You can't do it without having the sales force involved and aligned with the effort or you won't succeed. Guaranteed. But most, uh, <laughs> I agree, 100% agree with all your points. Uh, but in most cases, uh, uh, the CEO or CIO or, or whoever is kind of responsible for, for this kind of commerce project is uh, is uh, uh, is not digital not a digital native not not driving yeah, the right. change process because he has only like three years left on his contract maybe <laughs> or uh, or he's, yes. he's, 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 maybe he's he's not able anymore like from a cognitive uh, skill level uh, uh, to invest in, in in such a thing and most of them are managers they're not the owners anymore if you're like talking with owners it's a totally different game but most of them are managers they have to mm -hmm. manage risks and the only thing you and uh, and when it comes to changing your sales channels that's kind of a very risky thing uh, to do so is there like a a, sh a shortcut for like this kind of um, org transformation, uh, uh, so you can um, so you have an alignment with the CEO. Well, the shortcut is um, that your competitor is going to do it and put you out of business. I, I hate to be so blunt about it, but I mean, just look at the retail sector, guys. I mean, you look at you if you look at what's happened, what's happened in retail and how and how much carnage has been caused there by e-commerce. The same thing is coming to B two B markets. 
if you're not paying attention to this, then you know your competitor is going to. So I agree with you, Alex. There's 50% in the U.S. There's 50% of of uh, B2B companies that don't have an e-commerce capability. 50%. There's 50% though that do. And there's people that are that are um, that are waking up to this. You know, and, and I, I I talk in the book. I talk about um, the fact that to your point. It's easy for a B2B company or any company for that matter to become complacent if business is just good enough, meaning I'm growing just enough or maybe I'm flat, but I'm still really profitable because there's a lot of profit in B2B, right? Business just good enough. I don't have to change. I don't have to enter the uncomfortable space of making change in my organization. I'm three years away from retirement. I'm not going to mix, you know, mess up the boat. Yeah. Okay. The The challenge though is that things are now changing and COVID is the loudest call to action I think ever in our lifetime for, for B2B companies to transform themselves and to start using digital. Um, but there's no replacement for leadership. If you don't have, if your leadership isn't going to take action, you're, you're not going to see, you're not going to see digital transformation if they're not behind it. And every, every instance, every, I have 30 case studies in the book, every instance where there's been successful, um, e-commerce and digital transformation, leadership has been, in, has been behind it. Okay, I'd like to I'd like to make the following proposal. So I haven't read your book yet, so we 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 can make an exchange. So I send you the e-commerce book, which is mine, I <laughs> and I, I will I will I will I, I will I will buy your book, um, and maybe we can do like a second recording where we go like case by case. Uh, uh, are all those cases success cases or some cases where uh, where uh, where, it's, where it has been a little bit tougher? Oh sure, I mean it's always tough, right? None of them are done. So, you know, success cases, you can count success in that you've gotten return on investment. You're seeing tra tra high trajectory as it relates to e-commerce. Um, and, and there's certain a lot of elements and there's certain certainly a lot of companies that have had that kind of success. But there's a lot of companies that are learning, too, and, and they're learning from their mistakes. And so, yeah, there's some there's some lessons learned, too, for sure. <laughs> Would you be willing to record like a, a, a second episode where, which we're going to use for going case by case uh, sure. through your book? Yeah, yeah okay. I'll, I'll give you some good ones. Yeah. Then I invite you to do this. So I, I, I need to, uh, a couple of days to, to read through your case studies. And then I, I, I'd like to deep dive into the learnings of uh, B2B because I think when it comes to B2B, Uh, e-commerce transformation in Europe, especially in Germany, which is like B2B super heavy yeah. uh, uh, player. It's like we are like at 2%. And in uh, 50% of the cases that are obvious already uh, uh, um, cannot do it because of uh, leadership issues <laughs> right. or, or, or field force issues, uh, um, so to say. So it was uh, super exciting to hear your views. Uh, um, I would uh, uh, I would propose then uh, uh, a second episode in uh, in a couple of weeks from now awesome uh, where we go through your uh, through your b2b cases uh, maybe I can also throw some b2b cases from Europe yeah uh, uh, in the pond uh, and then let's see uh, what we can learn and maybe we find some some color and some common uh, success factors uh, which help them our customers thank that'd you be, Brian. that'd be great Alex thank you I look forward to that I hope you liked this episode and you will Tune in again when we are talking about the specific B2B success cases and some cases that didn't work out at all with Brian back again in two weeks.